0: and I were joking around, should we tell her we we're going to do Revelation or maybe the Gospel of Mark or no? We'll, we'll get to the right text here. We are going to look at Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 through chapter 5 verse 1. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And while you're doing that, I uh, just want to let you know that uh, Christo is preaching at Providence Baptist Church up in Tyson's Corner. Uh, that church is one of the pillar network churches and we're just uh, having greater opportunities to serve some of the smaller churches there by sending people to help them uh, preach the word on Sundays. So we'll be praying for him in just a moment as well. And and also, Edward and I want to extend a real sincere thanks to you for praying for us for our recent trip to the, uh, to the Dominican Republic. We just had a blessed time with about 35 leaders from the church down there in Santiago. And we had lots of other time with their leaders and with their pastors. And God is doing a great work in that church and in that seminary and in that community, and what a joy it is for us to represent you as we go down there to serve them. Uh, We're also looking forward to having the high school kids come up this July. I think they have about 20 or 25 kids coming up, so lots of opportunities to serve them when they come, but uh, but mainly just want to say thank you. Thanks for praying for us. Last week, we left off with Paul expressing his heart and his concern for the Galatians. In chapter 4, verse 19, he said, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So he's not using soft language here. Like, he's really in anguish for these people, that Christ would be formed in them. And in verse 20 says, I am perplexed about you. So there's clearly a problem. There's a desire and a problem that are coming together that he is trying to deal with, with the Galatians. And, and as I thought about it, I said, well, when do we ever have a situation like that where we see something going on and we just feel so deeply about it because something's just going the wrong way? And I just thought, you know, it's like as a parent with a child or when you see a dear friend who's in a toxic relationship, you guys know what I'm talking about? It's just, it's not good. And yet the person that you love so dearly just keeps going back to it over and over and your, your heart just hurts. And I think spiritually, that's a little bit about what's going on with Paul towards the Galatians. His heart hurts for them. They're, they're making some really bad choices over and over, and he's trying desperately to get their attention. So Carolyn Pearson's going to come and read our text here this morning.
1: Law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Father, as Cristo is preaching at another church here this morning, we pray that your spirit would be with him and that he would preach words that bring life to that church and bring encouragement to them. And Father, we just pray that you would anoint him with your presence as he preaches today. And, and Lord, as we have your word preached here today, we pray that your spirit would be active amongst us, not only in the preaching of the word, but also in the hearing of the word. As we take in what you have for us today, Lord. May it penetrate our hearts and our minds so that it stays where you want it to stay, residing within us, leading us and guiding us, showing us your ways, O Lord. And so we pray that you would bless this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. So the context in this letter here is that some of the Jewish Christians were teaching the Galatians to be, quote unquote, under the law meaning in their minds that you're not really children of Abraham unless you also obey all the laws of Moses. So the Galatians now were starting to add their performance or their good works to Christ's work in order to remain acceptable to God. And so we've used the phrase gospel plus. They, they believed in Jesus But they also thought that they had to do something about this, too, in order to maintain a right relationship with God. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's what Paul was getting so upset about. He had already declared that a person is not justified by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Christians do not have to become Jews or follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Because if you do that, if you add anything to the gospel that we believe that you follow Christ by faith and not by works, if you add anything to that, you actually sort of deny the heart of the gospel. That our salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. There's no part of it where it says, oh yeah, and you better do good in order for this to work. No, it's a gift from God and it's a gift of grace because if we add our works to it, it's no longer by grace anymore, it's by merit. So being under the law can look two ways. We sort of have big L legalism. That's justification by works. It's basically saying, I don't even need Christ. I just need to work hard And God will accept me. And if you dissect and understand most of the world religions, that's a lot of times what it is. In order to please God and be accepted by God, you just have to work hard. And these religions are laborious and they are heavy laden because you work and you work and you work, but you're never quite sure if you've worked enough. And then if you stumble and fall, you think, oh, well, now I'm going to get demoted or maybe God's not going to be pleased with me anymore. And now my relationship with him will be broken. And so that's sort of the big form of big L legalism. But what we have here in our text is something a little more subtle. And I think it's something that we need to all pay attention to as well. And that's what we would call a little L legalism. It's a confusion between the doctrine of justification, which is where God sets his affections upon you based on his love for you, not based on any of your works, And that establishes the foundation for your relationship with God. And that is unmovable, unshakable, and never to be broken. That is your firm foundation that you and I are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's justification. We've been set apart. Sanctification is the process whereby we start to become who God's called us to be. We're to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so if you truly have faith and the Holy Spirit resides within you well, then it's quite natural that God will fulfill his promises for you and you will become more and more holy and you will obey more and more of God's laws. And so justification and sanctification go together, but it's really dangerous if you confuse the two. And in this case, if you start to smuggle a little bit of sanctification back into your justification, in effect, what you're doing is you're putting yourself back under the law again. You're removing the salvation by grace, and you're making it again a salvation by works. And so the Galatians, in this gospel plus scenario, they were adding back in circumcision, dietary restrictions. They were keeping the festivals and the other ceremonial uh, traditions. And what was uh, happening is they started to get confused between just being in right standing based on God's love for them And now they were blending in that they needed to keep all these rules in order for God to be pleased with them. And you and I can do something similar, too. We might not have some of those same rules in place, but some of us might struggle with thinking that, well, if I didn't read my Bible today, God might not be fully pleased with me. Or if I don't go to church regularly, or if I don't pray enough, and you could just put dot, 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 fill in the blank. But we can all have these religious activities that we can sort of in a mistaken way start to add to our understanding of what it looks like to be right with God. That it's not just by his grace, but it's also by our works. So why is this such a big deal for Paul? Well, he loves that. And he wants Christ formed in that. And so he's asking himself, Will they make Christ their treasure and trust in him alone for forgiveness and salvation, which will then lead to freedom and access to God through faith alone? And Christ will be formed in them? Or, and this is his big concern, will they succumb to the pressure of the false teachers and thereby submit themselves once again to bondage under the law, put themselves back under the curse of the law, And so the stakes are pretty high, and this is why he's pretty lathered up about the whole thing. And and what I love about this passage, and probably one of the things that has affected me the most, is just how much he loves them. He wants Christ formed in them. And as a pastor, that's what you want for your flock. You want Christ being formed in people. And so I think this is a message for all of us today, even though we don't have some of the ceremonial and traditional elements that the Galatians were dealing with sort of in our midst We all have little things that we might consider sort of assisting us in making sure that we're right with God, that are not based just on what God has done for us, but in our own ways sort of what we're going to do for God. So the main point of today's message is don't submit to legalism, but stand firm in the freedom you have in Christ. And so I just have three points today, and if you've been in a Bible study on a college campus, you've probably heard these three points, observation, interpretation, application. Raise your hand if you've heard that before, and all my IV friends said yes and amen to that. But it was interesting, as I read through the passage, that's sort of how this thing plays out. So look with me back again at verse 21. He asks a rhetorical question. He says, you who desire to be under the law, okay, so adding these works back into just by faith alone, but now it's my works too. He says, do you not listen to the law? In other words, the very law you say that you follow, it actually would contradict you if you really understood it correctly. And so in verses 22 and 23, he refers back to the story in Genesis 15 to 17 and in 21 of the story of Ishmael and Isaac, two sons of Abraham. And I love the fact that Paul, in order to make his point, he just goes back to the Bible. He's not just telling them, hey, this is how I think it should be. No, he just goes back to God's word and he explains to them rightly how they should be understanding God's word. Now, Abraham, he's the father of the faith, isn't he? Both for Jews and for Christians. You see, Abraham believed God And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he believed God when God promised him that he would have his own son and an heir. And even though Abraham was old, he believed God. And that was the basis of his relationship with God. It wasn't based on anything that Abraham had done. It was based on his faith and his belief in the promise of God. And so when we think that we are children of Abraham, we're children of faith. That's the thing that we want to hang on to. Those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And blessed along with Abraham, it says earlier in Galatians. And in Galatians 3.29, it says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. However, Abraham had two sons, and they both have sort of different pathways here. There are two ways of being related to Abraham. One's a right way, and one's a wrong way. And so Paul illustrates this. Abraham's two sons represent two very different lines of how we're going to relate to God. The first uh, difference between these two sons is that they were actually born of different mothers. Hagar was a slave woman, and Sarah was a free woman. And so Ishmael, Hagar's son, was born into slavery, quote-unquote, and Isaac was born into freedom. So there's already an establishment. There's going to be two different lines going on here. But the thing that matters equally is that they were born under different circumstances. Uh, biologically, they were both born in, in a natural way. But the son of the slave woman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. And you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? Well, the way the story goes is that Abraham and Sarah got impatient with God. God was taking his time and fulfilling his promise to them. And so they decided to take matters into their own hands. And so they had Hagar, a household slave, become uh, in relations with Abraham so that she could have a child for him and carry on the family line. But that was not God's plan. But so Abraham, as he then fathers Ishmael, that is being born of the flesh. However, there was another son that was born to Abraham, the son of the free woman. Many years later, he was born to the promise And that's Isaac. And God gave Sarah a child well after her childbearing years had passed. It was supernatural, unexplainable, but it was an evidence of God making good on his promise to his people. Maybe not according to our time frame, but God, when he promises, he always delivers. And so you have these two sons born of two different mothers, one born of the flesh and the other born of the promise. Paul's point is, for the Galatians, the moment you believe in Christ, you are spiritually children of Abraham through Isaac and heirs of all the promises of God that were given to Isaac. And the moment you start thinking you have to obey the whole law and add that in or any of the law and smuggle that in, well, now what was started by the Spirit, you're trying to perfect by the flesh And this is the wrong way to go. You're following the line of Hagar and Ishmael, and you're spiritually born of the flesh instead. And so that's where these two lines start to diverge. And it's an important point of understanding because the blessing promised to Abraham and his offspring comes not according to the flesh, but through the promises of God. It's through faith alone. And so we are sons of Abraham through Sarah and not by Hagar. And that's really important because it's not just that we're sons of Abraham because both of those sons were, but it actually depends on who your mother is spiritually. Is Hagar, is that the line that you're in, by faith? Faith in the promise? Or through Hagar and through the law and through the keeping of the law, which puts you back under bondage? And so Paul's observation is that the Galatians, by adding law-keeping to the gospel... They're placing themselves back under the law instead of the promise. And so he's very concerned. And so that's the observation that he makes. So then he provides an interpretation. In verses 24 to 27, Paul needs to explain to them a little bit what's going on because they clearly didn't quite get it on their own. And they were being swayed by these false teachers. And says in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And for some of you who are linguists, you start to hear allegory and your little alarm bells go off going, no, we don't do allegory in the Bible. Well, the word allegory in this context had a few different meanings. And so he's not just making something up. He's actually using historical people and places from the Old Testament to illustrate a spiritual truth. And so Paul argues that Abraham's two sons and their mothers represent actually two different covenants. So it's not just two family lines coming from Abraham, but they actually represent two different covenants, two different ways of relating to God. The first is the Mosaic covenant, and that's the law, which Judaism was under and is under. And the other is the new covenant, freedom, apart from keeping the law, freedom to just be found in Christ because of God's great love for you. And that's Christianity. And it's through the work of Christ alone and not through anything that we add to this. And in looking at the ESV study Bible, Mark pointed this out to me, there's a little diagram in there about these two covenants based on this passage here. And you just see the compare and contrast between these two things because this is... Uh, notably one of the harder passages in Galatians to kind of figure out. And so it's like, what are all these things doing and how do they mean? And so just briefly, being under the law, well, that's the slave woman. Through the promise, the free woman. You have Ishmael and Isaac, according to the flesh, through the promise. You have Hagar and you have Sarah, slavery and freedom, the present Jerusalem and Jerusalem above, persecuting and being persecuted. And so without getting into all the details of what those things mean, and I'll explain a few of them, the idea is he's just trying to drive home that from Scripture, not only are there two lines, but there's two covenants. And it's really important that you understand which covenant you're under so he's really appealing to them and explaining to them from Scripture how important this really is. Look at verse 24 again. One, and then you could insert the word covenant, one covenant is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And so when we read our Bibles and Mount Sinai is referred to, well, that's an appropriate symbol when we think about the law, isn't it? Because it's the place where Moses received the law and God established his covenant with Israel. But the Mosaic covenant was to show that all who are under its demands, well, they were going to be incapable of keeping this on themselves. And that's why it said that they were in slavery because the law was such that it was there and it shows and demonstrates not only who God is and what God loves and what God requires, but as we look intently into the law and we look at our own lives and we realize we are incapable because of our own sin of ever keeping that law. And so while the law itself is not bad, the law ends up being a persecutor of us. It ends up prosecuting God's lawsuit against us to say, you don't measure up. And that's why God needed to provide a new covenant. He needed to provide a different way. See, we were never going to be able to live up to God's requirements on our own. And so we were going to need God to help us fix that problem. And that's the basis of the new covenant. God's decision to make a way for you and I to be in right relationship to him, not based on our law keeping, but on his grace and on his mercy. So salvation is this beautiful thing that we have, but the law was a harsh taskmaster and is a harsh taskmaster. And when it says the present Jerusalem, he's just referring to basically the center of Judaism in Paul's day, that's the temple. And it represents being in bondage to the law issued at Mount Sinai where all the sacrifices were held and all those sorts of things. But those sacrifices had to go on year after year, day after day, why? because people kept sinning and more sacrifice had to be made. But when Jesus came as part of the new covenant, he came and sacrificed himself once for all. That's why we don't go and have animal sacrifices and we don't have all these rituals. Why? Because those have all been satisfied in Christ. There's a new and a better way, not based on what we do and how hard we try and the treadmill that we're on to try to be good people and and make God happy with us. No, no. God saw the futility in that in our hearts and said, no, I will be gracious upon them. And I will set my affection on them. And this will never be a relationship based on their works. It will be a relationship with me based on my work for them through my son, Jesus Christ. So this becomes really important, doesn't it? And you see the contrast here in verse 26. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And what does he mean by that? He's just talking about how the Jerusalem above, well, that's the heavenly city of God. That's where Christ reigns. And as Christians, we are citizens of that kingdom. That's ultimately our home. And so that's the covenant that is our mother. And so he's using different language to try to just help them see from the scriptures that they had misunderstood what it meant to be a child of Abraham because they were confusing these two lines between Ishmael and Isaac. And he's desperately trying to help them see, no, you want to stay over in this other line with Sarah and Isaac. This is the line for you and I, that it's justification by faith alone. And I was reading one of the commentators, John Stott, and he said this. He said, in the law... God laid responsibility on men and said, thou shalt and thou shalt not. then listen to this. But in the promise, God keeps the responsibility to himself. And he says, I will. I will. And that really affected me. It just reminded me about how salvation truly is amazing grace, isn't it? I read those thou shalts and thou shalt nots, and I just sit there and I go, oh, the burden of trying to keep all these things all the time, it just gets heavy. But when I realize that I have a burden bearer, one who lifted those burdens off me and said, no, that is not the yoke that you need to carry. I'll take that heavy yoke and I'll give you mine because my yoke is easy and it's light. How is it Easy. How is it light? Because God sends his spirit into our hearts to make us alive to God and the promises of God so that instead of trying to please God by our works, we look up and just say, we believe in you. And we believe in your promises. And we trust you with our whole lives because we know that you're good all the time. And there's no other way to be reconciled to you, is there? It's never going to be through us. No, we're going to be reconciled to God because he says, I will, I will. And he accomplished this, I will, and I will, through the death of his own son dying on a cross for us. You just think about Jesus in the garden, looking at the prospects of the cross coming up, crying out to God, hey, is there some other way? but being resigned to acknowledge and fulfill God's plan. And Jesus cries out and prays, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law in ways that you and I never can. And not only did he perfectly obey the law and enable us to have his righteousness, but he did go to the cross. And when he hung on that cross, he paid for all those failures that you and I have. In the past, in the present, and even in the future. And Jesus paid it all. And in our place condemned, he stood. And friends, this is amazing grace. God kept his promise through his son in a way that was just unimaginable. But it's glorious. And it's the only way of salvation. Nobody gets to to the Father except through Jesus Christ and him alone. In verse 27, Paul finishes his explanation by quoting Isaiah 54.1. And you might be thinking, hmm, what's this about? And I'll just give you the short answer. This isn't supposed to be drawing us back to an analogy back to Sarah again and the barren woman, although thematically has some of the same things. It's not supposed to be that. Actually, there's a little bit more detail behind this or history behind this. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we have the suffering servant, don't we? The story of how God is going to crush his son so that he can have a people for himself. And right at the end of 53 comes chapter 54, verse 1. And from 54 all the way through 56... We see the promises of God being offered back to a people in exile. You see, he's citing the blessed promises of God. In the text here, the barren woman is really the Jewish people of Babylonia. They were in exile and they were in captivity. And so, what does God promise them? He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, the one in exile who does not bear. they, They weren't bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. They were exiled out of the promised land. Where was their hope going to come from? And God says, it's going to be in the promises that I give to you. And so he tells them to rejoice. He says, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And he goes on and recites all these wonderful promises of God. And why is he telling them this? Because in... Isaiah 54 and 55, we find out that the good news of the gospel isn't just going to be for one genealogical line in the Bible through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, the nations are going to be invited in. And so this woman, the barren woman, prototypically Israel in bondage, is actually going to bear not just a little bit of fruit, but fruit that surpasses all understanding. And friends, you and I are seated here today as the recipients of that. Most of us are not of Jewish birth or Jewish lineage. And so all of us have heard this great news that was heralded, and it's the fulfillment of God's promise to a people who are in a desperate state. And friends, that's what you and I were when we did not have Christ. We were in a desperate state. And the good news of the gospel is God comes to a people who cannot save themselves, and he will give them everlasting life. Not at all based on how good we are, but because he sets his affections upon us. And he looks at us and he says, You are mine. And I will never change my mind about you. Friends, this is the foundation of our faith. Paul was in anguish, and he was perplexed because he was so concerned that Galatians were starting to mix this up a little bit. They weren't quite getting it right. They were putting themselves back under the law and back under bondage, because if you didn't keep any part of the law, it was if you kept none of the law. And so they were putting themselves back under bondage. And as I thought about applying this message in my own life uh, this past week or past couple weeks... I realized that, you know, sometimes I can fall into the same trap too. You know, instead of just believing in Christ alone and living according to the promises and remaining free in Christ, there can be times when I want to smuggle a little bit of my performance into my relationship with God, sort of like an insurance policy. You know, I, sort of, I believe you, and I believe Christ died on a cross for our sins, but, you know, you're going to be a little happier with me if I read my Bible every day. And if I serve with a good attitude and I help other people out and fill in the blank, but I've just noticed that there is inside of me this just inherent desire to kind of question, is it really by grace alone? Is it really by faith alone? Isn't there just a little bit that I'm supposed to add to this to make sure that God's pleased with me? Sadly, as I thought about it, I said, by adding performance, these things that I just mentioned, I actually distort the gospel and I'm putting myself back under the law. And I realized it has some pretty dire consequences. The first one is this. When I smuggle a little bit of my works into my relationship with God, I actually diminish the work of Christ. And that's probably the most grievous part of this whole thing. Christ who never sinned, perfectly obeyed the Father, who came down from heaven to die on a cross as a substitute for my sins. When I start to smuggle in my works and my performance into my relationship with God, I'm basically telling Jesus, you know, thanks for playing, but that wasn't good enough. That's humbling. Now, I never think that intentionally. I would never say that. Yep, you know, really, it's Jesus plus me. And that's what gets me right with God. But it just helps me to understand how sin works in my heart and how the devil loves to tempt me with lies because I can lapse into that and not even realize what's going on. And diminishing the work of Christ is a grievous sin. That is something I want to repent of because I'm really grateful for what Jesus did for me. I was a person dead in my trespasses and sins, and I had no ability to save myself. Not only that, but I had every reason to expect that God would have nothing to do with me ever. There was no way I was going to get out of the hole that I had dug for myself. And yet in kindness, he reached down into my pit and just said, no, you'll be mine. So in effect, how dare I say, yeah, that wasn't good enough. And so it's humbling. And I'm saying this because I think maybe some of us can struggle in the same way. A second one that I had was, I limit Christ being formed in me. Here's the thing about this. When I'm so worried about my performance with God, guess who gets minimized? The work that Christ did for me. So instead of beholding his glory and being transformed from one degree of glory to another... I'm walking around thinking about what a good guy I am and what good stuff I can do. And instead of walking around with a big view of Jesus, no, I actually like to walk around with a big view of me. Very aware of all my righteous acts, very aware of all my goodness, very aware of when I say no to temptation and a little, you know, spiritual pat on the back. But when I do that and I put my eyes back on myself well, how is Christ going to be formed in me when I'm so preoccupied with myself? No, the way that we have Christ formed in us is when we become preoccupied with him. Third, and this ties into the text as well, I lose my freedom. I bind my conscience. I start to think I have to do all these things, and if I fail at even one point, God might start to be a little upset with me. I start to have a good day, bad day. If I do all the good things, then God should be good to me. And if I don't, then it'll be a bad day. And finally, and this is a very personal one, I tend to relate to God more as a judge and a harsh judge than as a loving father. When I was in high school, I had been out drinking one night, and it was late into the early morning. And when I pulled into the garage. The bumper hit the corner of the bricks and jolted the house. And my dad woke up and came downstairs. And And I'll just be honest with you, before my dad was a Christian, I lived in fear of my father. Uh, he had a pretty bad temper, and it was not something I was looking forward to. And I think in many ways, how I related to my earthly dad significantly affected the way that I relate to God as father. I didn't realize it, but But that was there. And thankfully, God saved my dad. And when my dad got saved, I started to realize that we were relating differently because now he was just expressing love to me, not based on anything I did, but just on the fact that he loved me. And then a few years later, when I became a Christian, I realized that I had some undoing in my mind to do. That I still had this feeling that, you know, if I sin and fall short of the glory of God, even as a Christian, that somehow God's going to be standing there with his arms folded and saying, you again? Really? After all I've done for you? And I can hear this condemning voice from God. And I'll tell you, Romans 8.1 really sets you free because if you're in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation. What I realize is that's the enemy lying to me. You know what I've noticed over the 30 plus years of being a Christian? God never speaks to me that way ever. When I make a mistake and when I stumble and fall, I'm not worried about the door opening up and dad being mad at me. No, I have this picture in my mind that when the door opens up, first thing he's going to ask is how are you? Are you okay? Friends, if we can get a hold of this, if we can understand this way of relating to God, it will change our lives. Especially when we stumble and fall. And I want to encourage you. Do you know God this way? That when you stumble and fall, does he open the door, look upon you with a, with a warmth and a love in his eyes towards you and say, I love you. We'll deal with whatever the consequences are of what you've done, but I love you. You, And even if there's discipline associated with, going, with what's going on here, it's because I love you. And I want you to be conformed to the image of my son. Which is the very thing that Paul was after here. He wanted Christ formed in them. So understanding the importance of relating to God just by faith alone and not smuggling our works is so important. Third point here, and I'll go briefly on this, the application, verses 28 to five-one. I love what he says. Now you brothers, don't you love the fact that he didn't throw the towel in on them? They were struggling, but he still called them brothers. He says, like Isaac, back in that right path, are children of the promise. And just as Isaac inherited the promises made to Abraham, we're gonna have to follow along the line too. And he says, sometimes it's gonna be hard We have to expect persecution. Those who were born according to the flesh persecuted those who were born according to the spirit. And so, look, following Christ, you're going to get persecution. But the good part is, in following along in the line of Isaac, we must expect to receive our inheritance. Verse 30 says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman shall not inherit with the son of the free one. Friends, we are not only children of God by grace alone, but we are heirs with Christ. The end of our story is so incredibly glorious that, that we miss out on a lot when we don't remember it. But if we remember that not only are we children of God, as Justin preached a couple weeks ago, but we are also heirs with Christ And the great news is that God will never change his mind about us. Verse 31 says, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You are children of the promise. And Redeeming Grace Church, that's what I want to encourage you today. No matter how you came in here today and how clear you are in your categories and all that, leave here today knowing that you are children of the promise. And God loves you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done for you in Christ. He has set his affections upon you. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Application, stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Redeeming Grace Church, stand firm in the doctrine of justification stand firm in our understanding that we relate to God based on his work in us and not our work for him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that freedom and life, true life, only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to remember this all the time. Help, this, help us to know that this is the basis for relating to you when things are going well, but also when things are not going well. And help us, Father, to preach the gospel to ourselves every day so that we are constantly reminded that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, because you are so good and so kind to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.